Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at BaltimoreSportsReport.com. You're listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. This is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. Coming to you live from the squeakiest chair in Brooklyn. <laughs> Also Hootenanny Studios. Um, but oh, of course, you, when I move around on it, it stops making noise. Can you hear that, Baltimoreans? That sound? The sound of pure, unadulterated internet coursing through Hootenanny Studios? Ladies and gentlemen, Hootenanny Studios is now a Fios household. It's big news. Big news. Uh, clearly, we're trying to distract ourselves from the end of the Baltimore Orioles season. But, you know, that's behind us now, Sam. And we can, I think, look forward here on episode 110. Oh, I don't think we have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. What we'd like to bring you tonight on the show, ladies and gentlemen, among other things, is uh, Alan and I have each selected an emotional zenith for the 2014 season, as well as an emotional nadir. Uh, so let's start, Smith, with what the, what was your emotional high of 2014? So many great moments. But at which moment did you freak out the most? It's going to be a cliche answer. That's okay. And I apologize for that fact. But uh, the emotional high for me was watching the victory lap and the pies with Adam Jones. Yeah. That was just... Uh, it's not a particularly creative answer because that was a very emotional moment. It was a, a a moment of intense, I would even say ecstatic release for the city of Baltimore and for Adam, I think, as well. But watching him do the cow circle with the Orioles flag, stop, pose with random people, get hugs, deliver pies to the faces of strangers, uh, reminded me a little bit about the potential for... A, a time when the baseball team is connected with the city and connected with its fans, and you really see sort of a, a personal connection there that I felt, thought was really awesome and really exciting. I agree. It, it's, it was like, it was that sense that it's not just about winning, it's about winning in Baltimore. Yeah. And what that means and yeah. what that looks like. It was a meaningless game fundamentally because we knew the Orioles were going to clinch at some point. Right. There was also just the, the, ecstasy of finally getting over that hump and saying this is a team that's going to win the american league east that is crazy if you dial it back to the beginning of this season uh well as a counterpoint i would like uh -huh. to offer uh the emotional zenith for me um I, I think i thought of it in uh slightly more momentary terms um which i didn't realize until you said that and i like the memory of adam jones victory lap better ultimately than the one i've chosen but the moment at which i felt the most unvarnished ecstasy yep. was uh the delman young triple yep in game two of the alds that was the moment that i remember uh losing myself in childlike passion to the highest degree that i can remember probably since 1997 that was also the moment where i was the most convinced we were about to win the world series yeah it was a moment where it felt like nothing can go wrong for this team everything that buck showalter does will be right and we do in fact have insurance against any and all possible challenges to the perceived weaknesses of our squad and that's 
so that's the baseball level. On a level above that, <laughs> I just to set the scene a little bit, I watched that game as we talked about on the air from Chicago. Uh, I was in a hotel room. I was by myself. One evening earlier, I had been at a mixer with a bunch of coworkers. It was the first time I had been out socially and and drinking alcohol as a person not in a relationship since 2008. <laughs> uh, and... <sighs> I uh, did a little Heady bit cocktail right there. <laughs> yeah. And I did. And there were, I, I have a lot of uh, coworkers who are complex, intelligent female persons. And we did some <laughs> close talking and I was sort of overwhelmed by the fact that that was uh, something that I was going to have to get used to navigating again. And I remember coming back uh, by myself, I stress, to my hotel room after that night and thinking, I am just, I'm in a new world here, man. Yep. And so when I sat mm. down to watch mm. game two, yeah. there, was a, there was a churning and burning need inside of me for, for gratification of my most base, like, I need to feel good. But also, in some ways, if it's a continuation then of that sort of, like, baptism... And that re-emergence from the river as a saved soul, right? Like being re-baptized as an adult and coming back out with a fresh start yeah. in some ways. It's a great place for a fresh start to happen. It, it was a great place. But the thing is, like, I, I, I felt like when Delman Young hit that triple, I jumped off the bed in my hotel room and I literally just ran laps like back and forth <laughs> by myself. And I was shouting out loud thank you thank you thank you thank you now i have deep concerns <laughs> about the fact that i was shouting thank you to delman young in my boxer shorts <laughs> like that's a whole separate thing uh which i think is just circumstantial <laughs> but uh I, I mean, I don't know how to put it, but really what I felt in that moment was so much gratitude. Like, yeah, thank you so much, Orioles, for being everything that I needed you to be, that anyone could ever want a baseball team to be for them in a time of, of darkness and confusion when everything was riding on it the most, both for me in life and for them in the playoffs. Uh, it, I haven't felt anything at that level in baseball or otherwise for a real long time. Yeah. Um, so, and I don't know, that's, that's a sort of a, it's a stirring thing to realize how yeah. happy I was at that moment. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a beautiful thing. I mean, do you, uh, I, I almost want to just not even talk about the, the downside now. <laughs> just sort of <laughs> leave it there. Well, yeah, I, I guess we probably should have done the downside first. Yep. yep. Um, but we didn't. Uh, so there's, there's no way to reverse that now. <laughs> That's true. We don't, we literally do not have the technology to change things around. No, the only way, I don't know if uh, a little peek behind the technical curtain, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> the only way podcasts work is if you turn on the microphones, talk for a while, then stop, then upload exactly what you've recorded. Yep. That's the only way to do it. Yep. It's a single straight line phenomenon. <laughs> don't listen to radio lab ever. <laughs> so... <laughs> So should we, wait, should we really? Should, I mean, I think we have to. Just keep going? I think we have to keep going. Okay. 
All right. All right. Well, uh, here we are at the top of a <laughs> snow-kissed mountain of joy, and uh, Alan Smith and I will now proceed to put <laughs> a metaphorical boot in your audio hind parts and kick you down the hill, hitting every rock along the way until you reach the Valley of Disappointment. Yes. Or, as we're calling it for the purposes of this episode, the emotional nadir of the 2014 baseball season. What do you got, Smith? Well, um, I think that the moment that I gave up on the season was the Billy Butler RBI fly in the sixth inning of game three of the Royal series. Okay. Um, and I remember we were watching the game. We, in fact, were live, live broadcasting it. And I remember going to Twitter, uh, and looking at the stream of reactions that always come whenever the Orioles do something not great. Uh, and I don't remember how it got to the place where Billy Butler was able to hit that, but I think that there was an error or an infield hit or one of the usual Kansas City Royal shenanigans to manufacture this run. And I remember going to Twitter and all of the usual negative Nancys were saying things like, well, that's it. The season is over. And for the first time all season, I didn't think, oh, shut up. Like, don't overreact. Come on, guys. It's baseball. It's plenty of time left. I was like, nope, they're right. That was it. Yeah. It was a low that encapsulated all that was wrong with the Royals series, but also in some ways with this Orioles offense. Because I have this feeling that a lot of the time over the course of this season, there were moments when the offense just wasn't going to get it together. And everybody was going to spend the rest of the game trying to tie the game on big swings. And we didn't have the sort of mind change that would say, okay, you got to get on base. You got to work something. You got to make sure you get that runner over into scoring position. That was not really the way the Orioles worked. So when you got into these very close games and you were down a run, that was bad. Yeah, I think I think yeah, that to me is the the hardest pill to swallow about the entire American League Championship se- series this year was that I think what the Royals successfully did that almost no one else was able to do to us all season long is they made us play their game. Yep. They made us play Royals baseball and made it so that we could not play Orioles baseball. Uh and which was which is to say our starting pitching was not able to neutralize offense in the first couple of games. And uh, then we, so we were able to get big hits when they mattered, but those big hits only got us back to parity. Yeah. We were never able to establish the lead that we so reliably established all throughout the season. And we were a very good team playing with the lead, but not a very good team playing from behind. We we did not play from behind very well. And this is the thing I didn't realize that didn't sink in for me anecdotally until the American League Championship Series. We didn't play from behind very often. No, not much at all. So for me, I would say the Machado indus- in- industry, the Machado industry, <laughs> making tiny gold glovers <laughs> for your in-home pleasure. Uh the Machado Inge- I don't know what that means. <laughs> that got weird. <laughs> well, you could imagine a condom called a gold glove. <laughs> I don't even really think you have to work that you hard know, to imagine such a product. I couldn't until just now. <laughs> Actually, 
Well, that 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 may actually be a product that exists on the internet. You you put a Google on that while I uh, while I while I get into this here. Uh, so the Machado industry was a third runner up for me. The Chris Davis suspension was the second runner up for me. But the reality is that the moment that is the most accurate counterpoint to the ecstasy that I felt when Delman Young. Uh, sent me into fits of of madness in a hotel room in Chicago is the moment that Greg Holland struck out Mike Trout to huh. end the American League Division Series. Huh. Because there was something, and it's very irrational, and I, I don't really have a clear explanation for it, um, but I, and I don't really have a a clear way of enumerating how I knew this, but there was something in that moment when Holland struck him out that felt like there was an inescapable truth that had just exploded like a thunderclap, which is the Orioles are not going to be able to beat the Royals. Hmm. There's something about what's going on with the Royals this year that we're not going to be able to get past. And I think what it was, was not that I somehow knew that the Royals were going to sweep us or even that the Royals were going to beat us. But I think what I experienced for the first time is like, oh, there's an entire other fan base of long-suffering people who have been starving for this moment for the entirety of their adolescence and young adulthood into their early middle age who want this more than they have ever wanted anything in sport. And... There's as much writing on them finally getting on it as there is for us. We're not special, I think, is what I realized in that moment. Mike Trout is not special. Everybody loves to proclaim that Mike Trout is the most special talent in baseball today. And, you know, you could make a very credible argument that he is. Everybody wanted this to be the first of many Mike Trout World Series. It We realized in that moment, like, oh, that's not a thing that we as baseball fans are going to get. And I think when he struck out, it was the first moment that I actually seriously considered that the ride was going to end at some point, whether it was in losing to the Royals or or not winning the world series or winning the world series and then having the season be over. It was the first moment where I felt like it's going to stop. Yeah. This wonderful uh, emotional rocket ship that we have had the gift of being on since really the beginning of 2012. It's not the only one flying through the solar system. I think that's a really interesting point because I think that um, I sort of assumed that going into the Royals series, I sort of assumed that whichever team came out of that series, I was going to root for. Yeah. That, you know, really? I was going to, I was going to be, I was like, well, look, I want the Orioles to win deeply and, and sincerely. But if we don't win, it's going to be because we got beat by a gritty team that I like and that I like the players on, and I like you know I like their story, and I really respect and enjoy their fan base because I feel like their fan base has a lot in common with the Orioles. I now no longer feel that, and I think that that switch was very interesting because I think it wasn't just, uh, and maybe this is sour grapes. This could very well be sour grapes because it could very well just be that I don't like to lose. But I really don't think that's entirely true. I think that the or the, the Royals fans or at least the ones that i was forced to interact with in different capacities both at orioles park at camden yards and on twitter were surprisingly dickish (laughs) and they were surprisingly um uh if you watched that game 
and that series, all that you could take away from it, in my mind, is, man, what a hard-fought series and what an amazing win by the Kansas City Royals. I don't think you can take away from it that the Orioles are chumps. I don't think you can take away from it the Orioles are chokers. I don't think that any of the sort of, like, trash talk that I saw was even particularly relevant or interesting. And so it just felt to me like, why can't you enjoy this like I have enjoyed the Orioles? And why can't you sort of be behind your team why does that have to mean that my guys are bad? And I acknowledge that that is probably the people who I was seeing, and I acknowledge that that is probably some sour grapes in there, but I really wanted the Kansas City fan base to hold up to this sort of like, look, we're all long-suffering fans here, we're in this together, like, I, you know, all, those, all these amazing pictures of the, um, the shootout uh, in in uh, the, 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 some some World Cup shootout where there's these two fans who are just holding hands like of opposite teams who are just holding hands watching this thing because it's so <laughs> stressful and they're in this together as fans. Like I kind of wanted that experience with the Royals fans and oh. I kind of wanted it to be there. Like hey, like I'm with you, you're with me. We're both fans. We both care about this. Like we're we're rooting for opposite teams, but we're coming at it from the same place. And it was really interesting to me that that didn't happen at all. Yeah. And as I tried to like reach out for that with Royals fans that I knew or Royals fans that were on Twitter or whatever, they were like, nah, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> and that sucked. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm like rooting against the Royals like deeply. I don't want them to win. And I and, and I don't want them to win because of the trash talk. And I don't want to win because the, that Jeremy Guthrie t-shirt hurt my feelings. And like all those sort of emotional stupid things that the Royals could really easily have avoided. So it's interesting that you say, like, there are other rocket ships flying through the same universe. I still think ours is a better rocket ship. (laughs) (laughs) I I expected to be like, well, there goes a rocket ship that I can root for. And it it didn't happen. Well, you know, I think that's that's a really good point. And what that makes me think of is the thing that was most clear... Uh, in terms of a contrast between the Orioles and the Royals as that series wore on and got to the bitter end of Game 4. And the thing that the national media was picking up on was the fact that the Orioles uh, did not have any post-game press conferences where they were like, we just... We just have to win tomorrow. That's it. That's that we got to get it together and we got to do this. Their attitude was much more, we're going to win tomorrow. We're going to play our game. We're going to get out there and we're going to do what we've been doing all season long. They were extremely calm the entire time. They were very loose before the game. The cameras would show them playing the relief pitchers playing soccer in the outfield. They weren't going to be thrown from the game plan that had gotten them through the first 99 wins of 2014. And I think, as you say, it isn't really manifest at all in the way that series played out that that was a bad game plan because any of those games could have broken the Orioles' way. It was a close series. Yeah. It was a close series. I mean, I think that mostly it came down to Kansas City getting some good breaks. Yeah. But so I think the thing that is an important takeaway from that is I think most of the people, and and no less than Jonah Carey said this in an article recently on Grantland, but most people who look at the Orioles... Uh, and the run that they had this year feel like, okay, the Orioles are back. And yep. there yes. is a lot yes. of reason to think they're going to be even better next year than they were this year. That is true. And no one's saying that about the Royals. Right. That and, is true. And, 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 and so I do think in the medium to long run that we have the right rocket ship. And I'm excited about that. Um, I was just 
hoping that I got to continue to feel good about what is truly a Cinderella story and one that I traditionally would be rooting for. And yeah. I feel like they, they pushed me away. Now, we're sitting here and uh-huh. we're talking about uh, who ought to win yes. and who gets to win. That's true. That's a very interesting point. And we have, we have more to say on that in just a moment. But first, we're going to take a deep breath and uh, refill our podcasting juice cups. We'll be right back on Baltimore Ons. You're listening to Baltimore Ons, the home of the all-weather fan. This is Alan Smith. My name is Sam Dingman. Let's get into a question of the the two teams that are currently playing in the World Series. Because it is undoubtedly true, by their win-loss records, that they have deserved to be here. They played better in the subsequent 11 games leading up to the World Series, and they won more than anybody else. But it's very interesting to me, Sam, that the two teams that are currently playing in the World Series were the 7th and 8th best teams in the regular season. And it seems like in some weird way, baseball has changed. And I wonder whether you think that change is for the better or not. Well, it's a tricky thing. I mean, basically what we're talking about is the one-game wildcard playoff. What it ends up coming down to when you talk about the one-game wildcard playoff is, is whether or not we as baseball fans are getting to enjoy a championship that seems like the culmination of the ride of the regular season. Right, right. And and fundamentally, that has always been the promise of baseball, right? Like, forget the NFL and the, first, and the 16 weeks of, like, any given Sunday. Forget the NBA and, you know, the, the, the regular season is just to get to the playoffs because that's when the actual magic happens. I think that baseball's promise is always that over the, the, the gauntlet of 162 games— one or two teams emerge as the victors because they have been they have been tempered by flame and they have been beaten and they've still there and those teams get to play in the World Series. Yeah. Well, so I I think to me a, a useful comparison here might be um, when we look at the way that we elect people in this country. Uh, we one of the the controversies that always comes up is that frequently the person who wins the election is not the person who would do the best job of governing or hmm. the person who has the best vision for the country but rather the person who does the best job of competing in primaries and raising money and so the person who wins what is put in front of them to win exactly yep so uh the result of that is that we more often than not uh, find ourselves saddled with uh, presidents who represent a sort of watered-down version of the ideal that we hope that office would represent. Run through the strainer of electability. Exactly. <laughs> so I, the when you look at the World Series, I think over the last couple of years when we've had the one game playoff as a factor we have also gotten world series that sort of fit that same description huh because 
uh, you know, when you look back at as much as I hate to do it, the the Yankee dynasties of the mid ninety mid and late nineties, um, those were those those teams were in the World Series. It seemed like they were there because they had been so masterful over the course of the entire season that the the right of playing in the World Series seemed like it had been fairly won right. by them. Right. Uh, and that it was sort of going to be conferred upon them. Yep. At the same time, nothing makes me happier than the fact that there were some occasions when it seemed like that was going to be the case, and then they lost. Sure. Uh, and they didn't. They weren't able to uh, to come through when the pressure was at its absolute highest, uh, because other people, you know, wanted it more or were able to exploit some of their weaknesses, were able to use the format. Uh, of the, you know, if the, what, if the ALCS is like the Iowa caucuses, uh, <laughs> the other teams were able to say, I know you, you know, you may have a, a better healthcare platform, but we got more delegates. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so I think because in baseball, we, we want to see the guy who has never had a shot finally get a shot when it means the most and come through. Uh, whereas with the presidency, we want someone who we want the New York Yankees to be president. We want somebody who embodies the greatest uh, version of the most evolved type of human that we can imagine to be the one who um, who gets all the things and who has all the power and who exerts the most influence. Uh, it, there's a difference in sort of like what we want from it. Sure. And... I think the fact is that if either of us was a Giants fan or a Royals fan, we wouldn't be having this conversation. You know, like, yeah. I, I just don't. And really, you know, we don't even have to think back very far to 2012 when I think we felt like, I'm sure we said in this room that the Orioles deserved to play in the World Series that year, yeah. even though they, the Orioles were the Royals that right. year. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And so, so I, I actually come down on the same side. I think it is good. I just think it's interesting that that is in some ways what baseball has given up. Um, and I actually think, you know, my favorite sports event of the year every year is March Madness. I really enjoy that sort of like who knows, like at any point someone could catch fire and go on these crazy runs and it's exciting and everybody tunes in for the upsets. And I kind of like that. And I kind of like that we've sort of created a space in baseball for a little bit of the puncher's chance to kind of go on that hot run. Um, I would compare it, though, interestingly, to the EPL. Um, and I think in some ways the way that Premiership Soccer has figured this out is actually the best system. Because what they do is they have a bunch of different trophies. And some trophies come from elimination match play, um, you know, Champions League, other sorts of things where you sort of play for uh, in elimination brackets like the playoffs and you get to win that trophy. But probably the most prestigious trophy in the EPL is actually just for the regular season winner, the equivalent of like the team that did the best over 39 weeks of play. And then the other games, the ones that are in these different weird tournaments and cups, come outside of match play. So you have way more games 
than just the 39 league games. But those 39 league games are pure in the sense that the team that does the best over those 39 games wins it all. And I sort of like that as a model. I also really like the relegation model. I really like the idea that the bottom three teams every year should be kicked out of Major League Baseball and three AAA <laughs> teams should get promoted. Mm-hmm, and I think mm-hmm. that that ongoing, I mean, it doesn't really work because all of our AAA teams are feeders for Major League Baseball teams. So, mm-hmm. But it would be really cool if we had a system in which... Or maybe one of the independent league teams. Right, Like exactly. the St. Saint Paul Saints. Exactly. You know? gets, a chance, gets a chance to be a Major League Baseball team. Right. And gets a chance to play in front of the big lights and gets, you know, a lot of more money for a while. And then they may get relegated again the next year. Yeah. Um, I really like that sort of rise and fall. And I think the, one of the things that that really does very effectively is because all these tournaments and because all of these things that are happening all the time, uh, no one is ever playing out the string in in the EPL. No one is ever just sort of like wasting time because if you're wasting time then you're going to get relegated. And if you don't get your shit together then you're going to be kicked out of the most prestigious part of soccer. And if you're not showing up for the tournaments like so you always have these different ways of keeping it exciting and interesting that allow for both the magical run and also the sort of like through the cauldron, through the trial by fire sort of moment. Um, I I do think that if baseball is going to continue to go down this road, they should seriously consider shortening the season because there's really no need to play 162 games to figure out who the top eight teams are. I think, in fact, what you could do is you could play 150 and expand the play-in game to a three-game series yeah so that's the that's the only other thing i want to say is that i I feel like the way i described it earlier made it sound like i kind of like i begrudgingly accept the one game playoff i actually think the one game playoff is a terrible (laughs) idea and a terrible thing because to me all the one game playoff is is it's invented drama that's all it is and it and that worked this year it worked but it's not real you know well, what I mean? That like, was an exciting game. It was an exciting game, <laughs> but there's no reason. The playoffs as a whole would not have been less exciting if the Royals were just the wild card team because they were owed that because of their one loss record. All that the the um, one game playoff really did is serve to sort of underscore the collapse of Oakland. Um, and the thing is, like, should Oakland really have gotten to be in that game? No, they their team collapsed down the stretch. And that game sort of ended up being like it was what it was for Texas in 2012. It was sort of a final slap in the face. Yeah. And I guess the thing that really bothers me about it is it's not reflective of baseball as a game. Baseball is a game of series and endurance yeah. and and making a game plan for a whole sort of narrative arc between two teams, whether that's a three-game series or four-game series during the season or a playoff series. Baseball is not built, and no game plans in baseball are structured around for one game. a one-game matchup. Right. So, uh, and the reason that those one-game matchups in the past have been so interesting, there were, were one-game playoffs, I think, in 2009 and 2011. The Twins were involved, like, maybe two out of uh, three years during one point in, the, in, in recent memory. Um, the reason those were exciting is because those games were necessary and had implications because of regular season outcomes. Sure. And deciding ahead of time that there's going to be tacked-on drama... Sure. to an already very complex narrative 
is no need. It just feels it, it, baseball is already dramatic enough and is already going to be interesting enough when you have a structure that's like, okay, we have the three first place teams and then we have one really, really solid B plus team that we're going to let in just to, just to make things interesting. Right. But the, the more you kind of dilute that, the more uh, you're just sort of buying in to drama instead of really experiencing something that has a kind of delicately calibrated uncertainty. Let's keep on this nostalgia or not question here, because if I if I kick off the premise of that last discussion with the idea that was the past actually any better, I also want to discuss a very specific point about Chris Davis's suspension, um, which you know, I know that that hits you pretty hard, and I know you think of it as one of the things that was really disappointing about this season. I actually see it as uh, maybe a part and parcel of things going a little bit too far in terms of how media covers things. Because I think that while I, you know, I, you know how I feel about steroids, listeners to this show know how I feel about steroids, um, I don't think that Chris Davis should be let off for cheating. However, I don't think what he did was particularly cheating. And I don't think it's necessarily a good thing that every single action by every single player is put under a microscope to the point that we don't get interesting characters in baseball like we used to. So there is a bit of nostalgia for me about a time not even necessarily when I was particularly alive, but a time when baseball players were larger than life, when they were personalities to go with being athletic stars. And I think much like politicians are now, our baseball stars and our sports stars in general have been neutered by the the fine-tooth comb over which we we sort of pick through all of their actions. Now... Is it better to know and condemn Ray Rice for beating his wife than it is to accept the womanizing of baseball players of the past? Absolutely. Is it better to condemn the, you know, is is it better to have the media catch a Watergate over uh, accidentally blowing a few things like Gary Hart's uh, subsequent, you know, dalliances with women out of the water Absolutely. Like, that's clearly an advantage to modern media and to things being gone over and gone over and gone over. However, I just sort of feel a little bit like in the past, we would have had more people like Adam Jones and maybe more people like Chris Davis who didn't feel like they had to be defensive at all times, shields up at all times, not really be able to engage with people uh, like they kind of, I, it seems to me, want to because the judgment and the blogosphere and, to be honest, us sitting here in this space of like going over and over and over the season and thinking about the season in terms of our own emotional aptitude and all that bullshit. Like, do we lose something about the ability for these people to be entertainers that captures more than just the game of baseball? That is that is a, a very difficult and very thorny question um, because I think, you know, a, another person to me that always pops into mind when we have these kind of discussions is David Ortiz 
because yeah. David Ortiz is somebody who is, I mean, he, he's like the PT Barnum of baseball. Yeah. You know, um, or he, I mean, he's Ruthian in a lot of ways. He's, he's absolutely Ruthian. And, uh, I think the farther we get away from figures like that, like we love to kind of charmingly talk about how Ty Cobb was really, uh, he was kind of a racist old coot, but he was Ty Cobb and he got those 4,000 hits. Whereas yeah. today, we, we, no, he would have been lambasted. He, he was, he was as bad as Ray Rice. Oh yeah. You know? and, oh yeah. And I don't, I'm not saying that to try to be inflammatory. Like Ty Cobb was a terrible guy. <laughs> yeah. He was a horrible, horrible right. guy. Right. Um, yeah. And there, I mean, there, there's, there is a laundry list of, of sporting stars pre-1970 who were just terrible to women right. <laughs> like laundry list just terrible we you know we, and it we was love, just boys being boys yeah and we love to talk about like oh wilt chamberlain wilt chamberlain slept with ten thousand women or like whatever the right. number he claims is twenty thousand, like, i think is that i mean is that actually something that we should be uh sort Super of excited about allowing to be a casual kind of funny heroic heroic, heroic um trope i i don't know if that's the case i think also you know just to keep going with this another thing that it sort of points at is this question about like where when is it okay to um decide that you're not going to engage with information about something in culture beyond a certain point when is it no longer okay to say I know that there are something like, and I'm going to get the number wrong, but it's something like 14 women who have made allegations of sexual assault against Bill Cosby. Right. Um, right. Like what, when I'm deciding to not be up in arms about that, what I'm doing is I'm saying probably those 14 women all got together and decided to make up a story that would get them endless amounts of flack and hatred in a very public <laughs> spotlight sure. uh, when their dignity was like allegedly forcefully taken from them by somebody who used allegedly his fame to shield himself from consequences for that. Right. You, you don't have to believe it. You just have to engage with the fact that it might be true. And the second you do that, you shatter the convenient America's dad in a diamond sweater image sure. that you have of Bill Cosby. The, so I think the real question here is, can we zoom out even farther and can we love baseball on such an extremely holistic level that we love the fact that we used to romanticize these people's uh, substance abuse and like... Um, interpersonal exploits and now we can't do that as much anymore but we're aware of that transition and the thing that keeps us focused on the game is the fact that it is still the game um like or or when we zoom out that far does it all just become so conceptual that we don't have any emotional fence post <laughs> to hold on to anymore. Right. And that, that's a real concern. And, you know, we've talked before about how I think that the reason why I love baseball the most is because of the narrative and we do get to kind of know these players and see them ups and downs and this is and that's. I guess my point a little bit, though, isn't that I think we should stop doing those condemnations. 
Like it isn't that I think, uh, you know, modern athletes are doing terrible things and they continue to do terrible things. And more and more, I think they're actually getting taken to task for those terrible things in a way that I think is appropriate. I don't think we should stop with that. I just wonder whether or not we have a binary thing, which is either hero or goat, and we push too many people into the goat category for too many reasons. Mm -hmm. Like, does the process of the 24-hour media cycle artificially conflate things that are not the same? There are real scandals in politics. There are real things that people are doing that are corrupt and that are abusing power. There are also things that feel a little bit like, I'm not sure that's that big a deal, but because they are sort of, because you can put a gate after it and because it can be a scandal, that seems to kind of get put in the same, well, that that one's dirty now. Mm -hmm. I don't think that taking Adderall that is something that used to be prescribed to you, it's a dumbass thing to do. It's certainly breaking a rule that you knew existed and he shouldn't have done it. But it's not the same thing to me as Barry Bonds. No. It's not the same thing. And I don't think that they should be conflated and I don't think that they should be analyzed the same way. Yeah. And, and it, I think that there needs to be from all of this um, an amount of of self-analysis and self-reflection that the media does before taking on these stories. Because I don't think that it's this I don't think it's fair to say like well, there is a little bit of of smoke. It's the media's responsibility to unearth everything and write a 500-page report about how dirty this person is until they do some responsible thought about that. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree completely. And and the other thing about Chris Davis taking Adderall is that it doesn't mean that the 53 home runs came from steroids, which is what a lot of people on the internet interpreted it as. Sure. And that and I this is more negative than I like to be, but like people who thought that, and obviously no Orioles fans thought this, but like <laughs> people who thought that are idiots. You're idiots <laughs> if you think that because this guy, if this one thing is true, then this other thing that you made up and there's no evidence of is also true. That's that's dumb, and that is a huge problem. But I think the other thing that it sort of points to is, I mean, I think really what we're talking about are two separate issues, and I think what this actually is as you were just saying, is an indictment of the media and not an yeah. indictment of the game and the athletes because the agree. game has always been the same. I would the agree. athletes have always been the same. But what has changed is that the media in uh, the way that it covers stories now is looking for the most digestible, click-worthy, easily comprehensible narrative that they can get out before anyone else and yes. be associated uh, in the public eye as being the source of whatever this dominant narrative is. And right. so they need, they're need they under a tremendous amount of pressure to pick something and have that be the thing. Which is why Watergate broke media. Yes, I, I agree. I agree, absolutely. Because now everybody wants their Watergate. Yep. And, and now everybody wants their... Every, everybody wants to be the person who breaks the story. Everybody wants to be the person who, f who sends out the tweet that gets the most retweets.
So the San Francisco Giants are, uh, once again, World Series champions. But let's look at what's really important coming up in the next week. Because the parade in San Francisco will be nice and all, but we're also about to have a national election. National elections mean a lot of things, Sam, but more and more recently they have meant an intense attempt by the Republican National Party to disenfranchise larger and larger swaths of voters by playing some shenanigan games to keep them from being able to vote in the way that they have expected to be able to vote. The best example of this, of course, is what's currently happening in Texas, where uh, the Supreme Court has decided to uphold a voter ID law which uh, allows for seven forms of photo identification to be used to identify yourself at the polls. One of those forms is the uh, gun license. That's an okay form. One of those forms is not a library card or an expired driver's license. So you have to have an up-to-date photo ID that proves you are who you say you are. Now, Rough estimates by the Texas Court of Appeals, which suggested that they shouldn't do this, remember this is a Texas judge saying this, is that 400,000 or so um, Texans will be disenfranchised by this vote, unable to cast a ballot because they do not have, in the next two weeks, the ability to get the photo ID that they need. Um, They're everything from having to drive four hours to the local place that provides that identification to... The less entirely compelling, but still probably very real in some people's lives, cost of one of those identification things, which is probably about 30 bucks, to the fact that their vote probably doesn't matter anyway because they're voting in Texas. But the <laughs> the the let's not, let's not talk about that part. <laughs> let's not go too much into that. But the the thing that the thing that really boggles me about this is that the reason why we have to go through this process of voter ID is to prevent in-person point-of-contact voter fraud, which is essentially someone showing up at the polls, me showing up at the polls in New York, saying, I'm Sam Dingman, and casting your ballot for you. How dare you, sir? Right. It's something that I could theoretically do. However, it's not something that people actually do, because in the last three elections in Texas, there have been two cases of confirmed voter fraud. So in three national elections, three times people could go to the polls and try to play these games, fewer people have done that than people who have been married to Kim Kardashian. <laughs> so we, 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 we don't have any evidence this is a serious thing. Now, many people who are much smarter than I will tell you many things about voter ID laws. I just want to say it's very interesting to me that the Major League Baseball All-Star game is officially now better at democracy than Texas. (laughs) Because what's the goal of a democratic discussion, right? The goal is to have as many people get as much say as they can and be as passionate as they possibly can about something that matters to their lives. Unfortunately, the Major League Baseball system of allowing you to vote 35 times a day from as many computers as you want, as many times as you want, is actually a much better method of tracking people's democratic engagement and and access than whatever is happening right now in Texas. And I think that that may be the most condemning joke I could possibly make. Because the All-Star game doesn't matter at all 
And no, no, we're and, talking about home field advantage in the World Series here, Smith. The voting system is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> because every single time Derek Jeter wins. <laughs> well. He will be voted for shortstop next year. Mark my words. Show some retupect, Smith. Show some retupect. <laughs> don't have it in me. Just don't have it in me. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't really know... <laughs> I don't really know. I don't really know what to add, except that uh, I hope the San Francisco Giants are listening, <laughs> because on the heels of one of the most heroic on-field performances that has taken place in, let's just go ahead and say the history of baseball, because sure. that's what Madison Bumgarner <laughs> just did. Yeah, <laughs> we are so resentful that the Orioles didn't get to make it <laughs> to their rightful place in the World Series. They would have beaten the Giants. Let's be real for yeah, a second. Absolutely they would have beaten the Giants. <laughs> that that having just witnessed that, and we did just pause recording, as yeah. if you've been listening closely, you can probably tell is what just <laughs> happened. Uh, we just paused the recording, went into the other room, and watched Madison Gum- Bumgarner etch his place in history as yeah. he pitched the, the the bottom of the ninth inning in Kansas City. Watched the the encomiums of the national media just sprayed all over him like <laughs> so much. Uh, cheap champagne. Cheap champagne, thank you. <laughs> and then came in here and were like, the fuck of it is, voter laws. <laughs> well, look. That's, that- I just want to say, this is the most Baltimoreans moment <laughs> Of all time. <laughs> the thing is, what Madison Bumgarner did, however impressive, is now history. Whereas the We're voter ID about laws the here. is still four days out. <laughs> Six days out. What day is it? <laughs> well, I will say that I received an email from moveon.org yes. uh, asking me to sign up to take a call shift uh-huh. to call voters in uh, states where the elections are very close to try to get people out to the polls. So that um, I'll go ahead and confess my leanings. Democrats have the best chance of <laughs> fan yourself with your with your, your programs. I'm sure you're surprised. Um, Demo- so the Democrats have the best chance of taking those very close races. I signed up to do one of those shifts. Then Alan and I decided to record tonight. And I was like, ah, we should probably record the podcast instead. <laughs> so I sent moveon.org an email today saying I, I have had a conflict come up. And they called me four times Aww. to try to get me to change my mind. So uh, this is the most Baltimore. <laughs> this, is the, this is it. This is it. This is peak moron. We're at peak moron. <laughs> but... Okay, so I do think that it's interesting to get back to the, the Major League Baseball All-Star Game analogy for, for a moment. Um, <laughs> if I may. If I may, sir. I, I think it's interesting that there is a case for the Republicans to make that is, I think, more genuine and probably more interesting than the case they're actually making, which is— Vis-a-vis voter fraud. Vis-a-vis, not, vis-a-vis who gets to vote when. Okay. I think you can make a well-documented and probably uh, interesting choice that – an argument that says not everybody should get to vote in the same equal way, that an uneducated voter should not necessarily have the same clout in an election as someone who knows all the issues and knows what's at stake. I don't think that that's like the same level of just – 
you know, head-scratching tomfoolery. I don't happen to agree with it. But it's I a conversation. That, right. And I think that, that, that you know, in, in, a, in a democratic system, we sort of have based things on everyone having the same access to vote. And that's a fundamental thing that we've decided on going in. So you can't really change those rules. Right. Um, and I think that the argument of who uh, not everyone should get to vote if they're not educated enough, not X enough, not Y enough is a very difficult slippery slope and who gets to draw that line is a problematic one so i think you always have to draw that line as high as possible but i just said a bunch of things that suggest that i'm willing to have that conversation and that (laughs) it's an interesting debate what's not an interesting debate is do we need to prevent point of contact voter fraud because no we don't right right (laughs) like there's it doesn't exist it's entirely a straw man it's a straw man that's getting the republicans what they want but i think it's very interesting that i think that there is a more intellectually honest case to be made that gets you a little bit more toward an actual discussion right well also the subtext of what you just said about people of varying education levels maybe Uh, needing to have different levels of access to various points of the democratic process uh, and how that's a difficult conversation, but one that should be had. There's no subtext to what you just said. You've spoken the subtext, which (laughs) is, yes, there are purity of process questions here, but there are also validity of process questions here. Let's talk about them. Right. The subtext of what the Supreme Court has allowed to happen in Texas is that if we let the poor black and Hispanic people vote, the Republicans won't win. Right. That That's <laughs> which, the subtext. Which doesn't seem to be a particularly, like, there, there really is no way to defend that subtext. What there is interesting, I think, about the American League versus the, the National League and, like, trying to make the All-Star game into a meaningful voting experience is that you do get to see the person you vote for play on the screen. Yeah, and... <laughs> That's not true in American politics. Right. And I would also say we spend a lot of time fretting and wringing our hands about what the most accurate way of managing the voting process is for the Major League Baseball All-Star game. (laughs) But we don't ever revisit the incredibly broken system that we use to elect the actual leaders of... Of the goddamn country. Right. So how many – when do they open a, the, 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 the all-star balloting? I think it's like six weeks before the all-star game, seven weeks before the all-star Something game. Something like that. You start voting on all-stars six weeks after the season starts. It's a completely absurd amount of access. We vote one day a year on the first Tuesday in November – which is probably going to be shitty weather. It's probably going to be where, like, we used to do that because it's allowed farmers to get off their farms and make it to vote. We don't need to do that anymore. We have other ways of doing it. It's the least accessible way to do democracy. We found it. We found the least, like, if you were to, like, make a joke about, well, we'll stick it on a random Tuesday in November. Like, that, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> right. That's But that's what we did. But if the all-star team voting has gone too far down the open access thing, <laughs> and they maybe vote a little early, and maybe you can vote a little too much. <laughs> and, and maybe it harnesses the power of the internet to democratize <laughs> access, so you don't have to be at the ballpark. <laughs> right. For example, it's not just season ticket holders that get to vote for the all-star game. <sighs> 
really, the moral of the story is that once again, we can turn to baseball for the way forward. (laughs) (laughs) Baltimoreans is produced by Sam Dingman and Alan Smith. The music on the show is our theme song by Marshall York. The interstitial music is the song Weather Report by Birdland. There is also another song that is occasionally used as interstitial music, which is called Working for Another Song. It's by the band Town Hall. And here on the outro, it's Kicking My Heart Around by the Black Crows. Alan. Yes, sir. What do you call Henry Yerudia when he is masquerading as a hyper-literate social criticism comedian from the West Coast? No idea. Henry Condabalurudia. (laughs) Sam, what do you call Henry Yerudia if he is in a, a Marx Brothers film about a day at the races? Uh, I don't know. Henry Tutti Frutti Ruria! <laughs> I like that one better. Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com. <laughs>